it's not going to be the same for every single person. Everyone's going to have a different viewpoint and a different experience. And we need to cater our behavior to each individual person we interact with. The pod class is in session. I'm your host, Jamie Anderson, and welcome to our series, Conversations on School Health, a holistic look at maximizing the health and well-being of students and teachers. This series is a collaboration between the Workland School of Education at the University of Calgary and EverActive Schools. Each episode, we speak with a different leader in their field about topics that impact student and teacher well-being. Today's conversation features a panel from the Alberta Health Services Youth Addictions and Mental Health Provincial Advisory Council, or YAMPAC for short. We will be chatting with Nick, Caitlin, and Heather shortly about their work with the Youth Council, and they will be sharing their experiential expertise around supporting youth concerning mental health and substance use. Before we dive into our conversation, I just want to situate our conversation in the land. Uh, As a white settler on Nitsitapi land, I want to take a moment to consider our relationships to the land and our relationships with each other. Our present moments, our here and now, are very much shaped by our shared histories and the history of Turtle Island. We come into this conversation with gratitude to the ancestors, elders, knowledge keepers, land and water protectors, all of those from the past, the present, and those who are in the making today. We also make space to recognize how our understandings about mental health and substance use have been shaped by colonization and colonial ways of thinking and knowing. We can't talk about well-being without considering the ongoing legacies of colonization and dispossession of Indigenous peoples from the land. These colonial ways of thinking have and continue to cause harm in communities. And so we come to this conversation with the hopes of decolonizing our practices in these areas of mental health and substance use. So to this end, we want to come to our conversation today from a place of relationality, relationship with ourselves, with others, with the land, and our relationships to the historical present, the ways in which our here and now have been shaped by events from the past. Just a reminder to our listeners that podcast learning is portable, and you can take it with you wherever you go. Maybe you want to get outside while you listen, maybe you want to listen along with someone else and connect through conversation with each other, or maybe you want us to keep you company while you walk your dog. Either way, we invite you to take this time to nurture your own well-being in ways that feel best for you. Without further ado, welcome to PodClass, Caitlin, Heather, and Nick, and thank you so much for all being here with me today. As our listeners are thinking about ways to tend to their own wellness, I was wondering if you could start us off by sharing one way that you're nurturing your wellness these days. Yeah, for me, I think it's like physical activity is really important. So um, I'm doing like push-ups and sit-ups while I work on my paper sometimes and going for runs, but like not excessively, just a normal amount, which I think is an important point. Amazing. Balance is important. And sometimes those quick little movement breaks just make the difference. Yeah, I really like what Nick said about like honoring how you're feeling in the moment, because sometimes the things that people tell us that are wellness are not like what we need in that moment. So I always try to like really look at how I'm feeling in the moment and really honor that because sometimes like positive affirmations do not feel good and they're not like the appropriate thing to do at the moment or like sometimes it doesn't feel good to exercise. So just really looking inside myself and seeing what's working for me at that time. Yeah, I, I've got to agree with kind of all of that. One of the one of the things that I found too is like 
with that self-awareness kind of comes a, an ability to kind of just discuss your own feelings and kind of nurture your own feelings. And I do that by journaling, um, kind of saying, hey, this is a sucky thing that's happening, but it's okay and I can get through it, right? Awesome. I think that's so helpful uh, for our listeners to take space to experience whatever is going on inside and let that lead the way. I know sometimes we're overwhelmed with like positivity culture that tells us that everything's okay and we have to celebrate and we have to, you know, embrace things in this way. But you folks remind us that we have agency in determining what's best for us and and we have voice in that and that's important and always so important to check in with ourselves around what feels best for wellness and uh, not necessarily let those other pressures um, try and steer us in, in taking care of those things. So it would be great uh, if you folks could introduce yourselves, offer your name and pronouns, and maybe share a little bit about how you came to be involved in the Youth Council. I guess I'll, I'll start off. Uh, my name is Caitlin Greer. My pronouns are she and her. So I'm a person that's struggled a lot with mental illness and addictions in my youth. And now I'm using my lived experience to support others. The exact term for it now is called peer support. I first actually used peer support as a resource to help myself. And it just changed my life so much that I continued to like pursue it further as like a career path. So when I actually first saw the flyer for the youth council, I thought I wasn't a good fit for it. And that like my voice at that time didn't really matter. Like I just was not there yet. And Now through the council, like I'm just learning to explore my voice and my strengths in regards to mental health and addictions like advocacy now. So that's really been my experience with the YAMPAC council so far. Thanks for sharing that, Caitlin. I guess I'll go next. Uh, My name is Heather Martins. Um, My pronouns are she and they. Uh, I started really recognizing my own mental health struggles probably from like the age of 12 or 13 onward. Um, I didn't really have a supportive environment at home to really get uh, the support that I needed to kind of deal with those. I I kind of pushed through it, got through high school, got through university, and in university I met this friend, and she was she was supportive of me with me finally being able to go and get the support that I need. But as much as she loves me, I think she got a little bit tired of me complaining about it. Um, so when she found out about the Yampak Council, she immediately sent a link to me and she's like, hey, like you need to check this out. Like You've got a voice. You need to talk about this because it is important. Um, and I think this would be a really cool spot for you to go to. Fantastic. Thanks, Heather, for sharing that. So my name's Nick. My pronouns are she, her. And I've lived with severe mental illness since I was two when I was first diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. And then subsequently, like my family life was abusive and I received no support for really anything I was going through throughout my childhood until I got to university where I ended up in and out of the hospital for a good like six years of my life. And so I guess with my experiences with like a eating disorder treatment that I was in for five months and inpatient psychiatric treatment for suicidality that I was again in and out of and then long-term outpatient treatment through AHS. I had a lot of really bad and unsupportive experiences with therapists and therapy and um, the hospital environment. And so when I found out about the AHS advisory council, I figured I should get involved because I thought that Obviously, there's some kind of disconnect between what 
the treatment professionals thought would be helpful for me and thought about who I was and about people like me and what was actually true of my experience. So a lot of the work that we do on the council is through advising different researchers or people from AHS about our lived experiences, both like outside of treatment. So just like what we went through as people who've experienced addictions and mental health issues and also like what we've been through in AHS and what's worked and what hasn't. And I find that really rewarding, especially alongside other youth with similar experiences, because you kind of feel alone when you don't have a good experience with um, the medical system, because people kind of tell you that like things that happen to you are for your own good, and that's not always correct. So it's nice to be uh, validated and listened to. Thank you so much for sharing, uh, Nick, and, and thank you all of you for um, your vulnerability and honesty and and really bringing yourselves into this conversation. It's so powerful to hear you folks and, and kind of hear your experiences through struggle and also through systems that are not always supportive and environments that are not always supportive. And then getting to hear you speak today about how you use your voice to promote and shift our understanding systemically and individually about mental health and addictions. What we know in the education system is that the work that we're doing to support youth mental health is not always effective and and we want to improve that. We wanna do better. We want to make sure that we're creating cultures that promote mental and physical well-being for all youth, no matter what they're dealing with or navigating. So this leads kind of to an important part of our conversation, which is, Can you folks comment on the power of lived and living experience in the efforts to support youth through mental health and addictions? What do you think the power is for having the lens of peer support, the lenses of lived and living experience, and not just, you know, top-down knowledge from teachers or administrators in the school environment about those topic areas? Well, since I've like once received peer support, and now that I am practicing peer support, it's like... I can't express how life-changing peer support was to my personal journey and how much it impacted my my health and wellness. Truly from the bottom of my heart, if any one thing was the most important thing to my, like, let's say recovery journey, it was probably the peer support. So like how I felt whenever I tried to open up about those really intense, hard subjects that like kind of come along with mental wellness and addictions. Like uh, I felt so alone and so silenced. And what really changed for me was when people did start taking that risk and being vulnerable with me and sharing their life experience. And now I feel uh, empowered to live my truth openly and confidently as well after seeing those people that took that risk with me to share their life. And it really made us truly connect on a deep level that I don't think is very common nowadays. I think I never really got the opportunity to get into formalized peer support spaces, whether that was, you know, my own anxiety towards sharing them with a group of people that I had never really encountered before, or, you know, an internalized belief that only the professionals know how to help me. I think something that I found, though, is that even though, you know, I had all these beliefs, an informal peer setting with friends that were mentally ill or just friends in general being able to say, hey, I have these feelings. I can't share them with anyone because I'm a 14-year-old kid and my parents aren't supportive. How can I get through this? 
And, you know, even if they didn't have the answers, just having them listen and having them acknowledge and validate those really intense feelings were really, really helpful and kind of made it easier to survive. I know some of the most important conversations in my life I've had when I was like 15 years old with other people who were also depressed and super like suicidal. And they were saying they're like, you know, you're not alone in these and it sucks. But at the very least, I can be a shoulder to cry on. So I think peer spaces are incredibly important and professional help is important and all of these, you know, more formalized settings are important. But I think also having that informal, like, hey, I'm I'm a homie helping you out. I think those can also be just as incredibly important too. Thank you everyone for sharing that. I think you've made and brought to our attention so many important points, which the research way about talking about these relationships would be like our natural supports. Uh, but you talk about like those informal opportunities with existing or or even newfound relationships with folks who understand us, where we're mutually supportive, um, where we can seek out support from them when we need it. And those relationships having such a huge impact far and above some of those institutional supports and those supports that are available. So thank you so much for sharing your experiences about that. And I appreciate you speaking to the difference between formal and informal supports, and then also the varying impact of those supports with your own experiences. I think that leads kind of to my next question. The name of the council is Mental Health and Addiction. So Youth Mental Health and Addictions. It's clear that these things are connected, and I'm wondering if maybe you folks can tell us a little bit more about why the work of mental health is important to work around substance use and addictions and wellness as a whole. What are the relationships between all of these pieces? For me, my substance use issue is about anorexia and bulimia, which um, isn't traditionally considered substance use, and I don't consider myself an addict For me, uh, when I developed anorexia, I think I was probably 14 when it became like, would have been diagnosable. No one noticed, but it would have been diagnosable at that time. And it was entirely like a way to deal with my fears around the trauma I was experiencing and the abuse and all of the feelings that were coming up from the post-traumatic stress disorder and the bullying that was happening to me because I was a kid that looked like a lesbian in my school. And I didn't even know like if I was gay, but I was getting attacked for it. And I was also simultaneously like being told by my parents at the same time, and particularly my mother that like, I was hitting puberty, I was becoming a woman and men were gonna notice me. And so I'd better make sure to act like a lady and do all these things so that they wouldn't attack me or I, and like I was getting attacked. So for me, like the potential for sexualized aggression due to my body changing was really terrifying. And also the feelings that were coming up when I was hitting puberty and everything I'd been told about what like being gay meant, which was mostly that you died horribly. The anorexia was my way of like pushing all of that down. And it worked pretty well because like when you're starving yourself, you really don't have a lot of room in your brain to like think about other things than the number of calories that you've eaten that day or like how many laps you're running and all of that stuff in your performance. So like that mental health piece around, like I was talking about the minority stress of homophobia, but I was also self-harming. I was going through post-traumatic stress disorder. I had mental health concerns that were related, but still 
disorders. And I think you can't separate the two because they existed, like the eating disorder kept me alive from all of the other mental health stuff that was happening to me at the same time. I'll just say thank you for sharing that, Nick. Uh, Heather, you're welcome to, to jump in. Yeah. Um, so I think addiction is not a disease. It's a symptom of something else, whether that's an unideal upbringing or mental health concerns or whatever. Addiction is a symptom of a bigger problem. Um, so I think I th- from what I've seen and from what I've experienced, addiction treatment is kind of best taken care of when the underlying issues for addiction are taken care of first. It's more of a coping mechanism more than anything, right? So you see it, you know, in drug and alcohol abuse, and that's a really easy way to see it. But you also see it in like things like Nick was talking about in eating disorders, where, you know, you have this particular kind of way of seeing the world and an eating disorder is a way to cope with that in that time period, right? I know you see it in other kinds of things like self-harm, things that I've experienced where, you know, in the symptoms of mental illness that I was feeling, things like self-harm made sense because they dealt with that initial issue, right? I've seen it in some of my other friends where, you know, they're taking pills or they're doing this or they're overworking themselves just because they don't want to deal with the feelings that they're dealing with. So I think addiction conversations um, need to be also had in the context of environmental discussions saying, hey, you know, what is the reason for the addiction? Not necessarily, oh, we need to punish the idea of having an addiction, right? Yeah, I think I might take that question in a bit of a different direction for myself. I have a quote that I don't know who told me, so I apologize if this was your quote, but something that I've heard said to me a lot is mental health isn't one size fits all. And I think that really applies to addictions too. So in my perspective, I think it's up to each individual to decide for themselves if there is a relationship between their addiction and their mental health. I just don't believe I can tell someone they're wrong about their own thoughts and experiences. So if they want to take the perspective that they're not related in any way. I think that's for them to say, not for me. But for me personally, I do think there's an overlap. And I do think it's really good to include people in the conversation and at at least ask those questions. And like, I think that's the most important thing to me is like that those questions are being asked to people and there's not those assumptions being made about them so that they have the opportunity to speak their truth and their life experience, really. I hear some really great like questions and also challenging of of the ways that we over individualize kind of through our medical models around mental health and situate mental health and substance use and addiction as something like internal or something with the person and you folks are really drawing our attention to the social and environmental factors that contribute to this and and in our medical models we continue to try and diagnose and treat the individual but how effective is that when our environment still, you know, hold up things like homophobia, transphobia, and racism? So without getting rid of those or addressing those those issues that are factors in our experiences, it's really hard for us to support wellness in that way. 
This leads me to think about why is it important for educators to see the relationships between mental health, substance use, addictions, or, you know, these broader concerns that you've brought attention to. And even more so, you know, we have some elementary teachers and pre-service teachers who are in the audience who might be thinking, you know, these conversations live mostly in the junior high and high school classrooms. For younger children, this doesn't necessarily apply. I'm wondering if you can help us understand why this information is important for all educators across all ages and all grade levels, and why it's really important for us to understand the interrelatedness of all of these different aspects of mental health and well-being. Yeah, so mental health addictions and all this kind of stuff, it's definitely not a conversation that you should only really be having when kids are a lot older. You can start even just bringing the ideas up to children when they're really young. Um, You see it in a lot of conversations uh, surrounding, you know, sexual assaults and uh, consent conversations where, you know, you don't just start the conversation about consent with saying, oh, yeah, you know, if you're having sex with someone and they say no, you need to stop. You start that conversation by saying, hey, you know, you're a small child. If someone's touching you and you don't want them to, you say no and they need to respect that. Or, hey, you know, if someone comes up to you and steals your toy, that's not necessarily okay, right? So I think a lot of mental health conversation can kind of be broached in the same way, where rather than diving in super, super deep, really young, when kids obviously can't handle that, start the conversation by educating on emotions and educating on self-intelligence and emotional intelligence by saying, hey, you know, like, this is what this feeling's like. This is how you create this feeling. When you're sad, it's okay to be sad. And let's sit with that for a little bit so we can learn from it and learn what that feeling is like. I know when I've dealt with a lot of little kids, I've had quite a long history of doing a little bit of uh, like preschool education. You see it in a lot of even uh, like toxic masculinity discussions where, you know, boys can't cry, but girls can and all this. But I think with kids starting the conversation about mental health, starting it young by saying, hey, you know, let's be happy together. This is what happiness looks like. This is what sadness looks like, I think is really important because it's really easy to build on later. Um, And then you can kind of address a lot of the early concerns with mental illness earlier because kids have that emotional intelligence to start recognizing when something might be wrong. Um, So I think starting that kind of stuff young is really, really important. You know, I think the key part for elementary teachers is trauma-informed teaching. And I think I actually disagree with Heather a bit because I don't think it's true that kids can't handle discussion of quote-unquote heavier topics. Uh, The reason I say that is just that some of us were going through it. Like I said, I was self-harming at the age of four. I don't recall a time in my life when I wasn't suicidal. And I had, you know, a particular problem because of the PTSD where when someone touched me, I would flinch and it would hurt and I would object to being touched. And so like that was perceived by educators and basically every adult in my life is like rudeness. So they just kind of grab me more, I guess, or like make me hold hands with other kids, that sort of thing. And like, I think that really defined how I saw consent in my own right to my body. And that kind of created the eating disorder later because I didn't feel like I had any control over what happened to my body or my physicality at all. And like, that was all happening when I was four, or even before that. I think, you know, especially with things like sexual abuse, I 
recall getting conversations with teachers about like, oh, you know, if someone touches you in a way you don't like, you have the right to say no. But then whenever someone would touch me in a way I didn't like, and I'd say no, I'd get in trouble and I'd feel terrified and horrible about it. And then I would just like deny those feelings because like I would say this hurts and I would literally get someone telling me back in words, no, it doesn't. Why are you making a big deal out of it? So like, you know, of course I didn't tell anybody when I was assaulted later because I thought it was the same situation. And so I think elementary teachers really need to change the way that they see the behavior of children uh, because I think it's seen as like non-compliance or something like that when the kid is probably attempting to, like I would fight teachers or try to when they would grab me and like that was you know, that wasn't seen as a kid's in distress, you know, it was seen as a kid is spurning my attentions, a kid's like not wanting to participate in the class because they're being rude. There was like a lot of indicators where I think people listening now would probably think, oh, wow, how did all these teachers miss that? I wouldn't do that as an educator, but you would, because you've been taught to see children and the way that children interact in one way. And you're not going to be able to see it from my perspective as a terrified four-year-old. You're not necessarily going to tell that I was afraid because I didn't make any emotional faces that would indicate that I was afraid, but I would say, don't touch me. So I don't know. I mean, and same with mental health. Like if someone had told me that it was okay to talk about wanting to die and they validated that and like just discussed it, then I think like maybe I would have got help earlier. I think you folks are addressing so many different pieces. And again, I I just appreciate your insights and challenges. And I've tried to capture some of those pieces to really hammer those points home with our audience. I think Heather and Nick, both of you are kind of speaking about pushing back on the notions of age appropriateness, uh, because I think sometimes the conversations amongst educators are like, this is not appropriate to talk about until this age, as though when you hit some magic number, automatically, you're going to either understand it, or maybe you are not going to experience those things within your life until you hit a particular number. But the three of you in sharing have kind of pushed back on that notion and, and said these pieces are really important to know and not when we're experiencing mental health distress, but we should be building those tools and those skills long before we're experiencing mental distress. And we really need to focus on the notion of mental wellness as maybe a toolkit for of like social emotional skills and different coping tools, emotional awareness and understanding that can support us in those times um, when our mental wellness is challenged. And of course, feel free to correct me if I, if I haven't captured that. Well, I was just uh, wanting to add that, again, coming back to like the mental health isn't one size fits all. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what I'm hearing because Heather and Nick kind of had a different perspective and just everyone wants a black and white answer, mm -hmm. but I think we need to get more comfortable with living in the gray and like recognizing that it's not going to be the same for every single person. Everyone's going to have a different viewpoint and a different experience. And we need to cater our behavior to each individual person we interact with. So in Nick, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but in Nick's case, like that would have been helpful to be trauma informed. But like in Heather's case, like maybe when she was a kid, like conversations like that would have been too much for her. And like, I think for me too, like sometimes if language was used that I didn't really understand, that would have been good for me as a youth as well. So it's like, you're not going to get a black and white answer. And that's what everyone wants because it would make things so much simpler. Yeah. <laughs> you just had one answer for every situation. And that's, that's just not how life is. That's just not how it goes. We have to get comfortable with living in the gray. So 
this kind of lends to my next question, which is kind of, you know, what signals would you look for to know that you are in a safe environment to have a conversation with a teacher? I know we've had conversation about um, when we felt unsafe and when we've been negatively impacted by, you know, these complicit behaviors of teachers. Are there signals that you look for to know you're in a safe environment with teachers, peers, other adults? Thoughts on that? So in my experience, I could not trust a teacher like for the absolute life of me. Um, the the few times that I had the inkling that I might were when they shared examples of how they've helped other students um, in very specific ways. So saying, hey, you know, like this this came up in conversation recently and it reminds me of this time I helped this one student with this particular issue. The The few times that I felt like I might trust that teacher is kind of when they did that. Being very openly supportive of queer relationships and of trans people and of gender nonconformity um, and being openly supportive of like people existing at different weights and body shapes and sizes. Uh, because for me, uh, I was uh, being bullied for being gay and I was really afraid that I might be gay and I couldn't talk to anyone about that. And I thought if like anybody even caught a hint that I might actually be gay, then I would literally get murdered or kicked out of my house or they tell my parents or stuff would happen that was scary and life-threatening and like that could well have been a life-threatening situation if that had happened you know a lot of my teachers would talk about lgbtq relationships and stuff in the context of the at the time it was the marriage debate was happening in the states and so it would be a fun social studies topic and some students in the class would object and some students would say in support well me i would say in support for some reason you know that was just it emphasized the risk that I was at possibly becoming a queer person. So a teacher that was openly supportive and openly inclusive. And I think that that would have made a huge difference. I think you all have just continued to, to highlight the importance of relationship and agency, choice and voice. And then speaking about relationship as well, you know, it's funny because in this conversation, I don't want to take up space with my own stories and experiences because what you have to share are so important. But I will just say this lends to, you know, my own experience as a teacher and a, as a queer person and trans person, I often feel like there isn't a place for those pieces in conversations or, you know, the structures of schools have made it so that it is seen as unprofessional for me as an educator to talk about those personal parts of my life. But like you've also eloquently said, you know, these parts of our lives cannot be separated out easily and are so important to us. And so for teachers, we have to feel empowered to create space and inform ourselves about the experiences of folks as well. And I, I'm thinking about this through a social justice lens and, and thinking about, Nick, your social studies experience where, you know, sometimes difference is used as like a classroom activity and we don't recognize the harm that can come from assuming that all opinions or positions are normal and fair. I think there is an importance for us as educators to challenge the idea that all opinions are valid and all beliefs are valid and really work to take a human first approach that understands or comes to understand how our identities or the ways that our identities are accepted or challenged in society shape us and affect us. And, and so it's, you know, kind of a moral imperative for educators to create spaces that are not just safe and welcoming, quote unquote, in a surface level, 
But how do we live that? Like, how do we live acceptance and embracing and nurturing all of our different identities? So I have a question about like educational resources that teachers use. I think not just around substance use, but also around like mental illness, like that very medicalized, disordered thinking focus means that educational resources and even some of the the resources that teachers are using to inform themselves or to inform their students are so focused on things like types, names, the seriousness, the effects. I think about that specifically with substance use. You know, you go through all of the different types of substances and then in conversations around mental health, they're often focused on mental illness, going through all of the names, the symptoms and the focuses. From the sounds of it, this is not necessarily a good starting place. So I'm wondering um, if you can help us to understand why this is maybe not the best starting place for educational resources or approaching these conversations with students and with youth. Yeah, again, like what I said before, I think that just comes back to coming in it with all that knowledge and thinking you know something. I just don't think that's a great way to approach any conversation because then you're not going to learn anything. So you really have to take the risk and ask those questions and ask each individual person. Like you have to do the work. You have to ask the questions because it's going to be a different answer for every individual person. So can't just come into the conversation with book knowledge. You have to come into the conversation with that kind of emotional intelligence and understanding that you don't know everything and that's okay. It's okay to not know everything and not have all the answers. And like, I feel like there's a lot of pressure on adults and teachers to, to be that person. And it's like, I just want to tell everyone, like, it's okay to be like, you know what? I don't know. I don't know anything that you're going through, but I want to listen. You know, as a, as a super dorky kid, I loved learning about all of that stuff. I loved having that book knowledge just for the sheer fact that it was book knowledge that I could absorb. But I think obviously have that nuance, but if you're going to rely only on education through book knowledge, at least have it be up to date. I found that my experiences with drugs, with alcohol, were a night and day difference uh, from what I learned in one-off health classes about drug and alcohol use. So, I mean, obviously what everyone else has said, but like at the very least, just keep it up to date. <laughs> that's Yeah, that's so helpful. And I think addresses how, you know, we have these problems in education where our resources, like I think about textbooks, which I don't know how many um, classrooms still use textbooks. I'm going to assume a lot because financial supports for resources are often very limited. But, you know, things like textbooks are outdated as soon as they're printed. It is so important for educators to remember that like our duty is to stay on top of trends and be in tune with research and know that what we know now is not incomplete and to challenge that and seek out resources that accurately represent it. I think that's that's a, a really good point as well. Thank you so much for that. So we kind of touched on the connection between mental health and substance use and addictions just in the context of the council. But in our course on comprehensive school health, we also talk about like eight different dimensions of wellness. So we we know that it's more than just physical health and mental health that are factors for our overall well-being. And so I'm wondering if 
you folks can make a connection for us or speak to the importance of making this connection to all of our different dimensions of wellness, which include, you know, our mental wellness, our emotional wellness, relationships and relational, occupational wellness, physical, environmental, spiritual wellness, financial wellness. I'm wondering if you folks can maybe speak to the importance, again, to not separate mental health and well-being from all of these other different aspects or or avenues for well-being. Yeah, so in my kind of experience taking a holistic approach to both, you know, my physical health as well as my mental health has been the best possible thing. You hear from time to time of like nature versus nurture discussions and I think that's really applicable uh in the discussions of mental illness where you know you can have a genetic side where your family struggles with this, you have particular genes that make you more susceptible to other mental illnesses, but the environment you grew up in or the environment that you're in also can exasperate those conditions, right? When I first started getting treatment for my mental illness, one of the first things like my depression, my anxiety, stuff like that, one of the first things that I tried alongside therapy was also medications. I wasn't able to work because I was unable to work. I was kind of depending on the whims of the student loan office to be able to, you know, give me at least a little bit of money to be able to survive the four month term. There were times where I was dealing with threats of eviction, um, you know, missed payments on my utility bills, threats of like having them shut off. And that definitely did not help the fact that I was having six panic attacks a day at this time. Um, It definitely made it worse. But that was something that I talked about like in therapy and with my psychiatrist. And one of the more validating experiences I got out of that is them saying like, yeah, absolutely. Like your environment sucks. It's definitely making things worse. Let's talk about strategies to help manage that environment, whether it's, you know, applying for H or going through Alberta Works to be able to manage that a little bit better. So that way we can actually treat a lot of the other reasons that, you know, you have these symptoms of mental illness. Uh, So I think in the discussion with teachers in general, talking about mental illness and talking about addiction, you need to have that holistic approach because there could be things that are jabbing that little mental illness, making it a lot worse that need to be acknowledged and need to be taken care of before the rest of your healing can continue. Those are really really helpful things for our listeners to hear and for me to hear as well in this conversation. I think you have all really shared, you know, really emotional stories and experiences. And I'm just I'm so grateful for your vulnerability. And it is such a gift to have this conversation with you um, and to hear from you and your insights. Like it it truly is a gift unmatched. Uh, I don't think that there is any better learning than getting to sit with you folks, obviously not in the same place, but in getting to sit with you folks and talk about these things. I'm wondering if not to say that we can wrap up this conversation in a neat little bow, but in terms of supporting our students around mental health or mental illness, substance use, addictions, what is one thing that a teacher could do tomorrow to maybe support better conversations or destigmatize conversations about mental health and substance use and maybe be closer to one of those teachers that you could have used or maybe needed throughout your experiences? I'm kind of struggling with an answer to this because I I didn't really have a lot of 
role model teachers that I could be like, oh yeah, you know, this teacher did this really well and I want to share that with everyone. But I think the the biggest thing that I could have used is a teacher acknowledging that they may not have the answers, but they can definitely just provide a listening ear in a confidential space. So I think as a teacher, a great thing to do tomorrow would be like, hey, things can be rough and I get that. I'm not perfect. I've dealt with it myself. But if you ever need to talk and you need just kind of that quiet area to talk with just you and me one-on-one, let me know and I can listen. I think that would be a really good starting point. Thank you, Heather. I think all of you have indicated that you've you've taken on you know, these characteristics yourself, which I think is really helpful. So even if you don't have teachers to learn from, we appreciate learning from you and your experience as a support for other folks. For me, what would have made a huge difference would be like teachers talking about queer people that are relevant to the discipline that they teach. Like when you're teaching about mathematics, you can talk about Alan Turing. Because like, I think, you know, as a kid, I didn't see myself in any kind of history or subject matter or anything like that. I didn't know that queer people grew up and like lived through their youth because of all the discourse around like 2S LGBTQ suicide. And so like, it's kind of like a off the wall one thing to do, but like tomorrow, (laughs) what you can do if you teach biology, why don't you Google queer biologists? Like I remember people talking about like the teachers being like, oh, this mathematician did that. Well, maybe talk about that so that students then know, okay, you're all right with talking about queer lives. And that's something that you see in a positive light. And then if there's a kid that's struggling with homophobia or transphobia, then they know that you're someone who's safe to talk to because you already have an established positive opinion of people like them. In the in part of this conversation, because I know all of you, Caitlin, Heather, Nick, you are all involved in advocacy and advisory work. And so you've given us a really great idea of what we can do in our classrooms. But I think it's also important to recognize that as teachers, we also have power to advocate. I'm wondering if there are things that we as educators should be advocating for to better support young people around mental health and substance use. Well, a lot of the points that I think came up today were like things around harm reduction and vulnerability and allowing people to truly and confidently be themselves, whatever that may look like that day. And it's like, I think it's just good to acknowledge that we might not always have the best mental health that day. And that's okay, too. It's like, it's okay to not be okay every day. And I think that's one of the best things you can advocate and let people know is that it's okay to not be okay. Thanks, Caitlin. I think teachers should advocate for, like, Black Lives Matter. I think they should advocate for the confidentiality laws that used to exist and that were repealed in Bill Haight around gay straight alliances. I think teachers should take communities seriously when they say, we need this in our schools. We need anti-racist education in our schools. We need holistic education about queer lives and sex ed and safe spaces that are gay straight alliances that are confidential for students in schools. I think that teachers have a responsibility to go to the protest, to talk to their students about what's happening in a way that shows they agree with the causes that like Black Lives Matter is taking up. They believe that this is important. I think I think that's what they should do for mental health because I think all that stuff is going to be affecting kids right now. When I was a kid, I paid attention to politics. Thanks, Nick. I think 
kind of in 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 the consensus that I was getting kind of saying, you know, as a teacher, build a relationship with your student. I think something to advocate for as a teacher is the time to do that. Whether that's kind of changing structurally what the school day looks like, um, whether that's changing the curriculum so that that way it's, you know, less rigorous, less standardized, less content heavy, you know, where students are just kind of absorbing this information and regurgitating it, you know, they should advocate for the time to be able to kind of step away from that and deal with the holistic student and saying, hey, you know, we've got a little bit of time, you know, let's chat about things. Let's chat about what this particular political event means for my generation as a teacher, but also your generation as younger students. Um, I think that's kind of a big first step into kind of being able to develop those more personal relationships. This could steer us into a whole uh, other conversation as well about even teacher mental health and feeling stuck in systems and not having voice. But I think every single thing that you folks have said is really empowering uh, for me as an educator. And I know will be so empowering for our listeners to, to recognize, I mean, obviously the power that you have as an educator and the harm that can come from um, what you do as an educator. But then in these points, uh, these final points of, of advocacy and what is important, I think you're inviting educators, in-service educators and pre-service educators to empower themselves to take up these really important issues and concerns in a really humanistic way as, as people who are not perfect and recognize that the role of teacher needs to um, needs to shift and our understanding of the role of teachers and the relationships between teachers and students need to shift as well. I just so appreciate this conversation so, so much. And I wish I could talk your ears off for another hour, hour and a half. But on that note, I, I will wrap up our conversation and I will wrap it up with an understanding that, you know, there are so many more conversations that need to be had around this, particularly conversations that invite the voices of youth to the table. So thank you, Caitlin, Nick and Heather for your time today. Thank you for sharing your stories with us. Thank you for your vulnerability. Uh, and we're so grateful for your work and what you continue to do to shape and transform our communities. And I would also like to thank Alberta Health Services, the Youth Addictions and Mental Health, Provincial Advisory Council, YAMPAC. It's a bit of a mouthful, but thank you as well for supporting you folks to join us today. So thanks for joining us for another conversation on school health, a series collaboration between the Workland School of Education and Ever Active Schools. Thank you to Matthew Wood for composing and performing the theme music and to Stephen Hurley from Voice Ed Radio for production assistance and sound editing. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at EverActiveAB, on Facebook at EverActive Schools, or you can visit our website everactive.org for more great content and resources. Until next time, the pod class is dismissed.